Kiora Pinakoto Numai Hairamai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Book in the Shadowlands podcast. Join me as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your hosts. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you live in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back and relax. Let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Hello everyone, welcome to our latest episode of the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast, which is the last episode for season 12. We will be taking a walk into the Shadowlands and the intriguing world of psychic investigation. Today we're joined by Nancy Orlin Weber, a remarkable psychic medium, a unique soul whose journey has intertwined with the realms of law enforcement, intuition and human connection. Rejecting traditional labels, Nancy views herself simply as a conduit for the highest good, tapping into the vast mysteries of the universe with a sense of humility and purpose. Are you ready to walk with us into this corner of the Shadowlands as Nancy shares her captivating journey, insights and the profound impact of her work? Then let's begin. Nancy Orlin Weber is the author of two books, Life of a Psychic Detective and All Nature Speaks, Conversations with Pets and Wildlife. She has appeared on numerous television shows and has her own YouTube channel. Nancy resides with her husband in New Jersey and has five children and 12 grandchildren. She enjoys creating pen and ink drawings, plus crocheting and donating winter scarves and hats, believing that the fabric of life is woven with love for all. Nancy trained and worked as a nurse for some years, also working in a new experimental unit, the Acute Psychiatric Unit of Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx. Ultimately, she left nursing and by March of 1975, she had a full-time psychic, medium and medical intuitive practice. In 1979, she was approached by the police to help them in a rape-murder case. Because of her assistance, the case was solved and the guilty party confessed. From there, she worked for many years with law enforcement. These days, Nancy is still actively involved in helping others find their spiritual paths. She feels her mission is to help everyone empower their own sacred spiritual gifts and empower our soul wisdom that it can help change our broken world for the better. I'd like to welcome my guest, Nancy Orlin Weber. I've read Nancy's book, The Life of a Psychic Detective, and I found it absolutely interesting, one, that you were believed by the police, 
because they tend to, as far as psychics and mediums go, they tend to be very dismissive. Yes, hi, Corianne. All I think of is being so far removed, we would never have met had it not been for technology. So thank you, technology. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? It's one of the wonderful things about doing this podcast is I have met some most awesome, awesome people that I would never have gotten the chance to meet had I not been doing this podcast. And every guest I interview for my podcast, I come away having learned so much, either about myself and my reactions to them or about the topic that they were talking about, or both. It's always a learning. Me too. There's not an interview I've done for others because I did PSAs, interviews, for seven years on TV, locally. And I always took away things, but I also found when you're interviewed, you also stretch. Yes. You don't want to say the same things all the time. You want to search for how else to say something, dig in deeper. So both sides are fascinating. Oh, (laughs) we are so lucky. Yeah, they're very, very lucky. So we can begin at the beginning. And can you share with my audience a little bit about your background and how you discovered that you had these abilities, psychic abilities, clairvoyant? Do you label yourself as a sensitive or a clairvoyant medium or what term would you use? Probably none if you asked me and I had a choice in this world. Right. I would say I'm a soul and what comes through is because I center and ask for my highest good and for the spiritual path of myself and all involved. Algorithms of the universe, let's call it. It's a brilliant <laughs> I way. thinking that way, that how would I know what's best? Mm-hmm. So being psychic, which actually is a Greek word called shikoko, is the original word that means soul. And so psychic is just another word for soul. And if I have eyesight, literally, or blind, or deaf, or have ears, I have the same thing on that ability, the soul. So I hear outside mediumship, the dead, the living messages sometimes. I see clairvoyantly, kinesthetically. I can feel that's how I knew a bullet went through the right temple of a guy because I felt it. And sometimes that's how I can know what happened anywhere or what's maybe going to happen, depending on what it is, because I don't like doing predictions generally. Mm. I don't think it's appropriate. But anyhow, I think it's all the senses that we also have as in our container, our human form. And we have the same senses as a soul, our soul spirit. So being psychic, I never knew it was very different, actually, on and off, except my mother was angry and terrified when I would say things that would be true. It didn't really bother me that she would say that because I didn't know other people didn't all do the same thing, right? Yes, How do you know yes. when little or, or teenager, what I had was a reputation of knowing people on an instant. Right. And like many people... We're nicknamed the mother confesses or father confesses. You have people, strangers walking up and telling you their life story and saying, I never told another person. And that's common, I think, among people who are sensitive. So when you put it all together, I've always believed that we're the hub, the soul is the hub, and the spokes are all the interests, all the abilities, and there are a lot of them. It's a kaleidoscope. 
Da Vinci, I love quoting. Everything is connected to everything else. No, he said that. That's really Yes, he did. Yeah. One of my favorite things to say and quote and say, come on, it's all connected. Absolutely, it is. I, I agree with you. And for me, on a personal level, I I was the same with my abilities as a child and also with my connection with star people, which is my biggest area of work here in this planet. And I didn't know that everybody didn't have this. So how do you know? You don't know because you have nothing to judge it off, do you? Nope, not until I became a nurse. That's right. Sorry, I've forgotten your book that you became a nurse because I did too. Hello. You worked in emergency, was it? I worked in, you name it. My first job was medical, surgical, and a cancer unit research. And then I went to pediatrics. I went to isolation nursery. And that's where I solved my first case. Right. Yeah. It wasn't psychic, but it did teach me. Well, yes. I mean, we talk about intuition being both physical and psychic. Right. Right. It's- of where you're getting everything. Yes. So that one, I worked in isolation nursery and at lunch, I overheard two nurses talking about a female physician in OBGYN who delivered a little baby cord was around its neck and she ended up strangling and killing it. Oh. And I asked how they knew and they said, well, a nurse told us that she was there, but she wouldn't talk and they wouldn't give me her name. And I was maybe 20. Something like that, 2021. And so I went back to isolation and a few weeks go by, I knew the name of the doctor and I get an order for a new baby in isolation and it's her orders and digoxin, which is for the heart. Right. Now, 0.25 milligrams is for an adult. 25 milligrams will kill many horses, many people, instant heart attacks. It said 25 milligrams. So I looked at it and I called her and I was alone. I had eight babies and I said, I need you to get in here and check the orders. I don't have the time. I said, well, you have to, you have no choice. So she came in, stormed in, took the chart, signed the name and ran out. And I went, supervisor, I have to go to the bathroom. And I took the order sheet, didn't show her. I ran out, went to a copy machine, copied it, put the copy in my bra, came back. And I said, Take a look at the order. Well, you know, if you killed the baby, it's not your fault. I said, really? I should have given it? Is that what you're telling me? She said, don't know what I'm just saying. I said, oh, you're crazy. I want, she said, what do you want to do? I said, I want the chief of pediatrics in here now. So he came with his entourage. Never forget. Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. He sees the order. He said, I'll talk with her. I said, you do better than that. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I have a copy of it where you can't touch. You got 24 hours, and then I go to newspaper. This is in the 1960s. Wow, you were brave. I didn't care. Yeah. I'm not going to let another baby die. Yeah. Me, it's a bravery. It's a risk you have to take because I don't want another death on my hands now that I know. Yeah, right? absolutely, absolutely. But he looked at me, and he said, well, okay, we'll see to it. I said, you better, or it's all over the news. Your choice. And my supervisor started laughing and smiling. She couldn't wait till he laughed. And she said, oh, my God, that was wonderful. I never forgot. Next day, he came back to me. She had no medical license. Flies were getting him out if you keep it open that way. (laughs) Wow. How did she get away with that? Because there were no computers. She forged 
a license from Chicago and took it with her because she just wanted to do it and thought she knew everything. My first. Wow. And how many lives did you save because of that action you took? Well, that's what taught me. Yeah. That taught me to step out and step up. Ah. Right. And that was, even though it wasn't all psychic, it was more intuitive about how to do things. Right. Prior to that, at 19, four months out of nursing school, I told the doctor he had the wrong diagnosis from doing up a GI. He doesn't have congestive heart failure. What are you thinking? Out of my mouth. And so he did it. He didn't argue. He went and did it. He said, how did you know? I said, you can't see. And that's how I started a glimpse of knowing that somehow this is different. Yes. Eyesight? Insight? Hindsight? I don't know. But I knew it wasn't heart failure. It was obvious that he, you know, it's like taking an x-ray, but one different. Yeah, I totally understand that. I had a similar sort of experience when I was nursing in peds, in pediatrics, and there was this young baby, and he was desperately well. And I was in charge. It was night shift. And I just registered. And I kept saying to my supervisor, look, there's something seriously wrong with this baby. Dr. Kane checked him out. He said, no, no, he's fine. I said, no, I think he's got an intersusception. And the doctor came back again and he said, oh, my God, I think you're right. And they rushed the baby to oh. theatre. But, you know, it's like that, Nancy. You've got to trust your gut intuition, eh? I think that the call to nursing, even though I left it in like 10, 11 years after starting, the call to serve mm. has taught us a great deal. Yes. Yeah. Of that, the benefits and the need. And we take that into everything we do. You're taking it now into what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when I, I don't know about you, but when I had to leave nursing because I had a back injury through no fault of mine, I slipped and fell and hurt my back. And I ultimately had to leave nursing. It was such a wrench because I really missed knowing that I was making a positive difference in people's lives. But it was a good basis because it led me into these other areas. So nothing is ever truly lost. Exactly. Okay. I I left because I was disabled by what yeah. my first husband did and what a client patient did when I was 19. A false admission. They put her in as congestive heart failure. The who person, 300 pounds. And before I knew it, she grabbed me and threw me to the floor and stomped on me. And I worked to the disc. Oh, oh my God. 11 months in a hospital bed. Because back then they didn't know what to do. No. And in 24 months, they rushed me in to, after some of the nerve innovations showed serious problems. And they saw that I had no more disc on one side. It was all gone. And rushed wow. it. And so at 25, when my first husband tried to murder me, I just... Sneaky that way, I pretended to be dead. So, and I was pregnant. Apparently, it ruptured the one above that. And I yeah. turned out I was born with congenital deformities because I have a genetic history. Somewhere, my ancestors was a dwarf. Right. And so I have the same spinal issues many of them are born with, where we don't have stability in the spine, we don't have discs in the lower part, right. and make the rupture. So. I had to leave eventually. I stayed a few more years. I worked in psychiatry. Man, was that the funnest job I ever had. You enjoyed psychiatry. Oh, my God. I loved it. 
It was a federally funded grant, acute psychotics only, and police pickups, reevaluation from 20 years in institutes, 12 bed stay, single beds, 12 unit in the old Lincoln Hospital that was torn down later. Over the head of the entry to our part, it said, home for retired slaves. And that's how old, horrible it was. Wow. And that's how old the building was. And we had a 10-day stay for reevaluation. We became the political football and psychiatry in New York State. Wow. I could see where hallucinations were hiding. They let me do everything I wanted. That's where I found it. That's where I found what I did. They taught me that, oh my God, how did you know all that? How do you get a kind of tired just talking five minutes, 15 minutes tops? I can get 20-year catatonics talking with me. I said, mind to mind, what are you talking? How else do you do these things? Yeah. You translate their language. He spoke with his hands, so I spoke with my hands. And suddenly he says, I'm John. Who are you? What's your name? Right? And I'm going, well, yeah, my name's Nancy. Hi, John. And we went back and forth. And I loved it. But hallucinations, I could jump up and see exactly what the hallucination meant. Wow. And say, your husband was in bed with this blonde white woman, and she was very dark. Florence was very black and lovely, but locked up in her apartment 20 years, burning herself to get rid of this woman. And so I was given free reign to do it. Anything I wanted. I mean, anything. Wow. Then they offered me every educational, paid for whatever. And I said, no. And they offered me the top psychiatric research post in New York State. I was 28. And I went, I have a better shot. I'm leaving soon. Wow. And I left because I didn't want to be there football, but I had learned a lot. Yeah. I had realized that I don't know how I'm going to apply it later, but I know I will. Yeah. It was very intense there. We had cops. We had APBs where they almost stormed our doors, guns drawn. Right. We were next to detox, and they had a fight outside, detox with cops. And next thing you know, undercover cops, everybody was racing in. And then our place was set on fire. So I thought it was time to leave myself of my tasks. Yeah. And fight the own way. Yeah, good for you. Now, a question about your time in the psych unit. Did you find that some of the people who came in that were supposedly psychotic actually had attachments to them? They had a lot of different things. I also learned neurologically. And I wouldn't let them have sugar. And made the walls be painted blue, soft blues, calming, and greens. No bright colors. Mm. Not pinks, red, get them out, they become more manic. So, whether it's color, attachment disorders left and right, all over the place, but also PTSD as we now know it, deep trauma. And because of other things I've studied, I've learned that the petrochemical industry has ruined many a brain and many a nervous system. Yeah. Goes right through into the placenta, goes into a neuro tube, first trimester. Lotion, soaps, etc., and anything that have tiny molecules can go in through the blood-brain barrier. Mm-hmm. So your fragrances that aren't pure and, and we're not pure, but they never call that pure, but genuine and uh, carefully tested by everything, including mercury, things of that sort, they can ruin the neurological system. 
and said, study death row. Often right. I've been there. And, and I've read the studies on death row, neurological damage. And I'm thinking, well, plenty of people are, but that doesn't make everybody that way. Yeah. So it's one role, you know, one cause. I, and it's the same thing when we know intuitively and psychically, there are no two snowflakes alike. I've seen people who were adults who had a history of setting fire to their entire family home and everybody in it when they were eight. You tell me where that comes from. Now, you have to trace back. And then, of course, if you're psychic and you love everything about it, you get into past lives, you get into ancestral history, you get into epigenetics, you get into the practical side, the genetics, the physiology, and you combine it. And nursing certainly teaches us that. Yeah, it does. And emotions, chemical cascade of emotions. It's a bit of everything, and no two have the same reason, even if they have the same diagnosis. Because our job was to re-diagnose. Right. And we took turns re-diagnosing. And thank God the people with me who were working with me and the psychiatrists in training were dynamite people. And we all felt the same. Don't give them drugs unless they're ready to kill somebody. We didn't give them such such drugs, hardly ever. Wow. No. It was color therapy. It was food. It was verbal therapy in, you know, just a fun one, which tells you who I am also. Pardon me. We're getting a little Brooklyn here. There was a woman who was taken away when she was 16, for spitting at her mother, thrown into a mental institute. Ten days later, her mother died. Her brother, who was in his 20s and could take her out, refused. She was now about 56 when she came to us from Bronx State Mental Institution for a reevaluation because she wasn't crazy. Yeah. She was terrified, lonely. And we sit in a little alcove. And next to me is a psychiatrist in training. And we're interviewing and we demand is her brother come. And her brother is sitting next to her. And we're just talking with them. And she kicks him hard. And he said, you see how violent she is? So I looked at her and I said, you think you might be angry at him for keeping you locked up all those years? And she goes, kicks him again. I said, I would punch him in the face if I were you. Wow. Hey, can you talk that way? I said, get out of here now before I punch you. Can't stand you. How dare you do that to your sister? Bye. And don't ever show your face again. I'll lock you up. I will lie about it and you will pay the price. Bye. Get the hell out of our lives. And she looked at me and she cracked up laughing. She was so happy. And I said, look, we'll do a whole year. Follow through. Get you a place to live because we had the best. New York City has one of the best still systems of service for all concerned. We were able to get her an apartment. We were able to teach her how to cook food, anything she needed. We followed through for a year with that woman. And she had a life, finally. Uh, Yeah. So we did things like that. Because what looks crazy isn't always crazy. Oh, my gosh. It's actually really sad. When I lived in the States, I heard a lot of similar stories like that. And even in New Zealand in the early days, if the family couldn't look after the child or that was a problem child or if a woman was having trouble, maybe she had endometriosis or something and had really bad periods, they would lock her up. It was just mm-hmm. it was horrific how we what? treated people. Boy, can we? My sixth grade thesis at the end of the sixth grade, was the uh, history of the insane asylum. Oh, and wow. And the development of it by putting women away. I was furious. Wow. 
Wow. So, so what age is sixth grade? Because you were... I was 10. 10. Oh, that's primary school. Wow. Yeah, I was furious. I, I thought, you're all crazy here. You're really crazy. So you've you all... People for, and you don't even... You know nothing about it. You just push drugs on them. What is your problem here? Oh, wow. Right? So, I mean... So from a young, very young age, you actually were on your path right from a young age. You were always advocate for victims, for people who couldn't speak for themselves. You know why? It's called The Child's Version of a Biography of Florence Nightingale. Um, on that one, she started it. I read that too. I read that too. That's what got me into nursing. I, I realized years later how influential... When I heard what she did mm. and how she refused to hear her family and demanded everybody do it this way because she knew what was right. And she went to Crimea and she, and I went, that, that feels right. Yeah. And she must have created a sprinkling of women around the world and men who have read about her and fell in love with what she did and just broke barriers and didn't care. Yeah. She was certainly an inspiration to me, for sure. Her and Marie Curie. I, oh, I, and Clara Barton. Clara Barton. Who was she, she founded the American Red Cross. And she also oh, had a tough story. Right. So, and I saw, oh, it doesn't matter what anybody tells you. Hmm. That is what your soul tells you. Exactly. One of my favorite star people said something once to me. That really struck me, and I've really tried to live by it. And he said, Marianne, when you do anything, you must do it from your heart. When you think, think from your heart. When you speak, speak from your heart. When you act, act from your heart. And it really, really hit me on a soul level. And it's something that I've tried all my life to do. I mean, it's not to say I don't lose my temper, and I'm not short sometimes. I'm human, but I try my best to live from that perspective, and I can see that you actually do too. Right, and I'm also somebody who can get annoyed, you know, and step in and step out. But I remember what I was taught by a being from the other side who's who was with me when I was in a crib. And at 13, I didn't get to see him anymore. And then at 31, he came back. And, and one day I said to him something that triggered, and he looked at me. And he said, listen, you only know the highlights of what we did. You know, the wonderful things we did or what we created or how we addressed the issues of the world at that time. He said, we also had problems. We also screamed in anger and hurt, cried. We also got stomach aches and arthritis and anything. It's not in those books because that's not important to what yeah. we do. He said, just remember, it's just highlight. So never put anything on a pedestal. I said, no sweat. That's easy. I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> In New York, there's a little sign that if Jesus showed up that day, people would look and go, what time is it? Oh, I can't make that. I have a work appointment to go. And just, you know, you get to understand energy is energy. And as long as you come from the right space, I don't assume I'm always in the right space. For sure. Right. Yeah. Because we're human. You said it. We yeah. are. And when I'm very human, I'm very human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you have to be. You can't be any other way. What inspired you? How did it come about after you 
had been working with your abilities for a while. How did it come about that you started working with the police? Okay. I was always interested in mysteries, any right. kind of it. And I think we all are. We want to know how the universe got created, blah, 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 everything. So that's a normal thing, I think, for all of us. Right. And I had read Nancy Drew, every book, Inside Out. So that was the seed early on. I thought, oh, man, could I be Nancy Drew? Nancy Drew. When I moved to Butt Lake, New Jersey, which is west northwestern part of New Jersey, August 1970, apparently, when I went to a shelter locally to get another dog, because I loved animals and always wanted rescues, and I had cats. And I always raised cats and dogs. And so the woman there saw that I was very psychically attuned to the animals. And I offered, whatever I can do, I'll help. Just let me know if I go missing or whatever, and I'll see if I can help. I don't know. She must have told the guy who was the head of that local paper. So the next day, psychic communicates with animals, right? And I signed up my son for karate, and I signed myself up because we had taken it in upstate New York, where we had lived, in Westchester County, New York. And so I signed him up. And so the woman who taught him had this long braid, and she was probably about five four. And at the end of karate, she said, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. She put me aside, and she said, you're a psychic, huh? Have you ever worked with the police? I said, why do you want to know? I would not answer yes or no. I didn't want to tell her no. I never did. I didn't want to tell her yes. I'm lying, but I didn't want to give her an answer. So she said, well, there was a red. And before she could say another word, I said, he's got kind of orange, reddish hair, kind of farmer looking, slim face, freckles. She said, would you mind if I tell my superior officer? No, no. So I forgot about it. The following week, I go to karate school. And the man is leaning against the far wall of the gym where they were, the dojo. And if you ever saw Sesame Street, if you get it there, Ernie goes, well, that was the chief of detectives, Ross English, in the corner going, come here. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> Next to him, he said, I heard you look. So I told him again, and I said, oh, and he took a stone to her head. He said, would you mind if I come over tomorrow with my partner and you talk? I said, oh, I don't mind. Now I was curious because I had no idea whether this was right or crazy or what. Nothing. Only I also know how to shut out things and focus. Right. Go home and cook for my kids. And at the time, the marriage was doomed, and I knew it. Again, my second marriage. But I was very comfortable. I'm kind of ridiculous at times about, oh, well, that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. So I'm there, and the next day he comes, and they go to my office in my home, and they sit across from me, Ernie and Ross. Ross says, would you repeat what you told me? I said, sure. And then Ernie looks at me afterwards and says, well, we have two people answering that description without thinking. No, you don't. In that tone. No, you don't. And I got up and I limped so bad that I could have fallen down with that limp. And then I sat back down and I crossed my arms like there. And they said, how did you know? And again, not thinking. I said, because it's easy. I became him. Oh my God, who was talking? I said, I did not recognize this person. I was a painfully shy introvert for many years. 
right. since birth. So here I was just acting with confidence. No, this is something was compelling. And so they went back and that was the first case with them I saw. It was a rape murder. And they went back to him and Ross did what he did several times for telling me. He does. He tells him, we found an eyewitness. We know it was you. And I look at Ross and he put his hands behind his head, sit back in the chair, very kind of Cheshire cat grin. Right. And well, you did see it, didn't you? That's the first time I ever heard that. He said, you were an eyewitness, weren't you? A valid description. Uh-huh. And it was really funny. And I thought, that's pretty crazy. And he admitted that he did it. Yeah. I've had several confess after telling men those things. Three that I know of, absolutely. Two murderers and my own, the burglary of my own home. Fully confessed. They begged not to point guns at them. They're coming back Right. So these first policemen actually treated you quite respectfully, considering. Yeah, which is really unusual. Ross and his wife and my husband and I became, well, not my husband then, but my husband now. When they moved, when he retired, he went to North Carolina and he said, when are you coming down? So we came down and we're sitting at dinner with them and he says, so. Barbara's his wife. He said, Barbara's going to take Dick shopping with her tomorrow. You and I are going with Paul Walker Jr., who is, I forget what, there was a movie many, many years ago, and I don't even remember it, but there was a guy, a true story, into a film. And this is the son of the man they named the true story about the cop who was great at what he did, whatever. And so they took me to a murder scene. That had happened a while ago, and they couldn't figure out something. They couldn't get evidence. And so I didn't know what I just told them what I saw. And then they said, okay, and now we're going in death row. So I would go with him. That was my vacation. I go with death row. And he's never serious when he worked. It was hysterical. But when we went out line dancing at night with them, I never saw a man that serious. Learning how to dance. Hysterical. And I'm looking going, Ross, I've never seen you so serious in your life. But he was County Detective of the Year the first year we worked together. We also uh, caught uh, a dirty cop. I was the confidential. And it's kind of funny because Christie is all over the news now as one of the people running for president in 2024. Right. He was the attorney general before he became governor of New Jersey. And Ross was... The person he selected for being the one he could trust to do internal investigations in our town. And it, I ended up being the confidential informant that led to the arrest of one of their crew, one of the police officers. And then he made a deal. He stole evidence, gun, and oh, um, right. testing material at the evidence room. And he made a deal with. Uh, I guess you the FBI because it was interstate at that point for him. He took it, of course. And by making that deal, he turned evidence, but we followed him. Morse would always tell me where they find him. And he finally committed a murder that he went away for life. Wow. Yeah. So I always think, mm, that's nice. I was a CI. I like that. <laughs> can, we, can, can we go back to your visit to the prison, to death row? Why did he take you there? What was the purpose? Well, that person, as I can recall, never confessed. So he wanted me to talk to him and tell 
Ross afterwards what I thought. Right. Because he called in on either he became a public defender. Ross had a lot of different abilities and ran the largest investigative thing in the state at that point. He right. was just that way judges hired him. So he just wanted to know my take. Years later, apparently, I don't know how many years later, they were doing a story on the new psychic detective documentary on, and they found him and they spoke to him. And it turns out I saw the murder case at the gas station that he took me to on the vacation. He never told me, like many things, because they don't follow through with that thing. They figure I know. Right. <laughs> they figure you'd know. Long ago, but sometimes they don't follow through because they're told if they even mention my name, which is why no stories do I ever tell of anything unless they're completely adjudicated in the court. Right. For safety, but also for the safety of everybody involved, families. And, well, that's I never talk about them. And they knew that. But they also, one prosecutor who was very political, and sure, call Nancy on the phone and ask her about this case. And Johnny Fox, Mr. Sheridan, he goes, pick up the phone and call her yourself. Well, you're so political, you can't afford to talk to somebody who might know something. That was Johnny. He was hysterical. I always, I had a very phenomenal relationship with almost all of them that I ever worked with. Occasionally you ran into people who were not that way, but so what? That's really, yeah, that's really real. I know personally, I had one case that a friend of this woman who went missing asked me to look into, and it's something I'd never done before. And wow. so this woman came to me, the woman that was missing came to me, she'd been murdered. And I didn't know the part of country she lived in, but she took me, she showed me the road that they took her down where they dumped her body, the position her body was laying in. And I noticed she had something in her mouth. I couldn't quite make out what it was. So I told her friend what I saw straight up with her. And she said, the family would like you to go to the police. And I said, look, the police aren't going to listen to me. They're going to laugh at me. They're going to say I'm a crackpot. So I did. I rang the police and they just laughed, literally laughed and hung up on me. And a couple of days later, they found her exactly where I saw her. And in her mouth was her ear. They what was it? Her ear. They'd cut off her ear and put it in her oh, mouth. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah, they're not laughing after that. They're, they're frightened. Well, no, no. I never heard from the police. They just... No, I know. They're frightened to ever call. <laughs> Whoever you spoke to is embarrassed that he was wrong and hung up. Probably didn't give it a second thought, but I oh, just... I they do. I, I disagree. They do give it a second thought. I'm telling you, they do. They are scared. Either, you know the difference between being a skeptic and a non-believer? A skeptic right. is open-minded, right? Right. So they be considerate, but a non-believer terrifies them. Right. That there's more to life than they know. You were really fortunate with the police that you worked with, that they actually respected you and listened to what you told them. If I may, whether it's the police or anybody else in which I'm supposed to connect for something, right. my first job, I believe, is friendship. Right. Nothing else. Right. And a promise that I will do my best and I have no clue what the outcome will be. So honest, 
and saying, I don't know if I can help at all, but I'm willing to give it any shot you want me to. Yeah. And so the friendship is literally to today. So those cases were in the 1980s. Right. And matter of fact, one of the serial killer cases I worked on, Bill, is I just did his granddaughter's baby blessing. Oh, and wow. We're all best friends because we share a common memory. Yeah. Of great sadness and great willingness to care. And George Duker was captain and he stood by the body of a young woman, 17, brutally murdered. And he knew who she was. And he is an angel. He's on my YouTube channel. I interviewed them because I love them. They're wonderful people. Yeah. Souls. His wife and he have come to dinner with us. We still are good friends 40 years later. Oh, that's awesome. Well, they're friends, you know? They consider me part of the group, and I'm very honored because it's teamwork. Yeah. Find it the same thing when I work with lawyers for two cases, two different husbands, and both of them, I had miracles, absolute miracles with the lawyers. They never charged me a nickel, two and a half years each. I never knew them before. I became my good friends, good friends. And everything turned out well because we're human. And if we drop the facade of the labels we put on each other, mm-hmm. and we just see the soul mm-hmm. and we care more about the soul. I cared more about doing as much work as possible to free them from having to do the, the very difficult tasks because they had I asked them if they had children, if they had a wife. I wanted to know them. They took me to lunch. They brought me home. I met all the families. And it was so important in my mind that no matter what you go through in life, if you don't connect first, the outcome is going to be you may not get what you want. You may be angry. You may be bitter. And most of all, you have lost the option for having a very special, unique relationship with somebody you didn't need to know before, but you need to know now whether it's to fix your car, to fix the plumbing in your home. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's just excuses to become souls connected. Yes. I always say people come into our lives for a time, a reason, or a season. Absolutely. I believe it too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So can you walk us through one of the cases where your insights played a crucial role in solving? the case hmm. well I'll give you a fun one a more simpler one one of the guys I worked with on a murder case called me he said I have a very strange case would you mind helping I said no so he came in and he had fingerprint record and we sat on the floor and I said oh, I've never worked with fingerprints before this is exciting he said oh good well and just like any of us not knowing what to do, it's so different than any business where you're trying to create something. Right. Pretty much. I said, okay, I'll just hold these. And I centered and I asked to be a messenger for the highest grade in the spiritual path. And I turned to him and I said, well, let's see. He had a broken elbow or something and was rushed to a hospital. And it never quite healed, but he became addicted to the drugs that they gave him. And when they stopped prescribing, he started breaking in places for the drugs. So this must be something where he 
broke into a pharmacy and stole a lot of drugs because he wanted to stash and also sell so he could get more. He said, yes, that's true. I said, well, you'll catch him. He said, how? I said, put put the thumb in particular. I don't know why, but that, that fingerprint, they're going to come up with it about six months from now. And six months from then, he called me and said, got him. Right. He left the fingerprints on something. I don't know what, and I don't know where, but they got it. And then they knew who it was. Wow. So that was fun for me. That's the same way with a DNA sample. Those are things I don't normally get to look at. Right. And there was a possible murder in, I think where, Atlantic City at the time. And so they brought me the DNA sample and I'm looking and I'm going, there's something wrong with the DNA sample. And he says, how do you know? I said, I don't know, but it's corrupt. It's not quite clean DNA sample. They said, yeah, we know that's the problem. No, what is this? Okay. Well, now what do you want me to do? I mean, okay, where do I go from here? They said, can you possibly just go to the right one in your mouth? Uh, and they went, well, let's see. I see a lamp and I start describing and the cord and whatever else. And they went, yeah, well, that's true. I said, okay. And so I drenched up whatever I could. And that's another one. I never found out answers, but I have found you have to know not to wait for answers. Just live. Go to the next thing and do your work. Just like a nurse. You don't know what happens when they go home, right? Right. It's the same thing to me. I don't know. And if you want to tell me, great. If you don't, that's fine too. Right. So you just do your job and move on to the next job pretty much. Right. I think it's the same thing. Yeah. I'm not special. I don't want to be treated so differently. Yeah. It's what happens, happens in their life. They have enough tragedy alignment. And the people who work, who come to me, you know, I always say when they retire, the men, at least, fish or golf, some of them continue working cold cases, but it's so hard to erase. And they've asked me, because I've worked on hundreds of cases, and I've gone to evidence room and fresh crime scenes and all of them. And they said, well, how do you live with it? And my answer is, I don't know. I do. I have a lot of creative outlets I made sure of. And I would suggest anybody going through anything, you Got to do something to stretch yourself into something totally new to wake you up and freshen you back into joy and gratitude. Right. right? And no matter what, no matter how devastating things are, you have to find a way to stretch because that will give you better answers to live and appreciate. Well, whether you like being in that space, whether it's your own personal pain or somebody else's or losses. You're still alive. How important is it to know it's a gift? Yeah. No matter what. I agree. So you actually answered a question that I was going to ask you about the emotional toll that doing this sort of work takes on you uh, and how you cope with it. Well, you sort of answered part of it in that you find things that bring you joy. So I think one of the things I would suggest to anybody was taught to me by my first nursing teacher, Mrs. Norman, was the calmest thing I had ever seen in my life. And one day I walked up to her and I said, how do you maintain your evenness? I've never seen anything like it. And she said, well, when you go to help, take all your troubles and all your worries and all your concerns and put them in a bag and put them outside the imagined or real door. 
go do your work. When you fish, if you want to pick up that bag, go ahead. And if you don't, leave it. I've been doing that ever since I was 16. And it really helped understand that if people are testing themselves on intuition and psychic work, one, I wrote in journals, pages after pages, books after books, testing what my conversations in my head with others, right. checking out, back checking everything to see how, oh my God, we really are all connected. When you're on my mind, you're literally on my mind. How weird is that? And then you get over that and you get joyful, right? But also, when you enter into anything, you have to put away everything else. And just the more we focus with intention is, again, I'll quote Kikinchi in a letter response on how he was able to do everything he did. He said, you're just focusing the light in a direction. That's a really good quote. Oh, I like Leonardo da Vinci. I, I love him. Yeah. Can you describe any specific challenges that you've had working with the police? Oh, with the police? Well, you might call them challenges. I call them karmic funny stuff. So one of them was a fresh murder. And I came into the scene and there were one I'll say law enforcement agent from and three from the state, wherever it was. I could talk more about And I walked around the scene and I saw the ceiling of the daughter, who was a woman 42 years old, brutally murdered. And she had red paint words all over her ceiling. And I looked up and I smiled. I said, 16 year old lives here. And mom adored her. That has to be. Because who in their right mind would let their kid write like that unless you love them and knew he, she had to get it out of her system. That's right. love. Yeah. So I came out and the first thing this one uh, state person said, yeah, she was a tramp. I said, really? I'm saying, well, if you know, you never cheated on your wife, which was a lot. I just waited for a look. He was livid. And I said, I've never heard that from anybody before comment like that she was not matter of fact any ex she had including her ex-husband all respected her all think highly of her go ask any of her ex-boyfriends still friends with her she just didn't want to marry them her choice not yours so then they said well it's her daughter i said absolutely not the daughter and i know what you're going to do you're going to polygraph her and ruin her life she's going to go mute she found her mother. Well, she had to because it was all locked door. I said, well, then you don't know how to look at it. Well, there's no way he could come in or she can come in and kill whatever. I said, yes, there is. I said, he lived in the next town. I named the next town. I said, he's a druggie. He came in looking for money and drugs. Where did he come from? Well, there was a gazebo about 30 feet away from her window. I said, he was at that gazebo looking to see where she was. And when she was in the kitchen, he came. Well, how? Because it was locked. I said, just to figure out, not mine. I know who did it. And I know his first name and I gave it to them. I have to be careful with this one. So six months later, well, her daughter was polygraphed and fled to another state to be with her aunt and uncle and their family because she won't come back to the state. Six months later, the druggie was caught trying to enter somebody else. He was skinny and could climb through this tiny window. So I 
got very PO'd about it for a very long time. And then I told the story somewhere in public and people, one woman stands up afterwards and says, I am the girl's aunt and I have to thank you. I knew all along what you did, I was told. And I have to tell you, it made a big difference to her, even though she had such a tough time. Years go by and that daughter was sitting in my living room talking with me, I would have cried. I love her so much. She's married, she has children. We openly talk, we hug, and she told me all about what she, and I said, I know, honey, and I tried to stop them, but they knew the law was anybody who was around, they had to polygraph, and I knew what kind of trauma, and I spoke to somebody who could make a difference at least, and she said, he was kind, but they still had to do it. And I said, the loss of your mother was hard enough, making you a suspect when you're in grief, deep grief is a really tough spot to be in beyond anything any of us can understand. We can't because we weren't that. So right. we've always been friends. Oh, it's really yeah. lovely. Oh, I love her. Yeah. So yeah. your work goes far beyond just finding clues well, from the place. Sure. Yeah. Wow. The, the work yeah. is not the work of finding. It is, that's part of it, if I'm meant to find, right. or the one that they will say did it. I don't really care. But the work is healing work, or however we couch it. Right? it. Yeah. And it doesn't stop just because that's finished. I have a friend whose sister was murdered brutally, and, uh, and it was me who became the uh, eyewitness that Solved it. It's in the book, The Murder by John Reese of Elizabeth Cornish. Her sister is still a very dear friend. Some of her daughters, the five daughters she had, I have met. I have even, I'm a member of a network called Young Living. It's a clinical aroma, it's aromatherapy and oil and few supplements. I've been in it 20 years. I studied chemistry. I go to a convention to give a talk right. and leaves word that she wants to talk with me. She comes over and she's giving a talk, but in between, she says, I am best friends with so-and-so, one of the daughters, and I want to thank you for the work you did to get him. And I go, oh my God. I mean, we were not in the state where it happened, nothing. But these things make you feel worthwhile. Mm. It's just making yourselves feel, thank you for the gift of life, and I'm attempting to do the best I can with it. Wow. That's really all of this yeah yeah wow that's really amazing and it's so cool that you got that validation after such a long period of time not that you needed it yeah. but it's always nice to have that i wanted more to know that she was okay yeah that was yeah cool. but you know it's like anything else we know they go through horrible things yeah so for a funny one a funny ending was on a sad crash out in another state. And I came in and the families hired me. And then they said, we'd like you to get what you told because you filled in things we knew were prior to the crash, but the state wouldn't even look at the state police. They didn't have local, big open spaces. Right. So they made an appointment before I left to tell the state police what I knew. So I tell them and I could see their attitude. <laughs> you mentioned okay so their attitude was then we have to listen to this 
how the heck does she know all this? Who told you? And I, you know, I, I said, man, this is just what I get. Uh-huh, that's nice. Okay, thank you very much for coming. Bye. I get on the plane. I'm sitting next to a man who sits down with me. And we both have the same bow's head bone. So we talk. Right. Well, what were you doing there? And I said, well, I'm him and far. And finally, and he just not really. I said, well, I was called into this crash. He said, oh, you work with the police? I said, man, I work with the family. What did you find? So I tell him. And he said, and who did they tell? I said, no, they you know, gave me a conference with the state police. And he said, what was your take about them? I said, they were god-awful. I said, they were arrogant, narcissistic. They think they know everything, and they don't because they didn't fill it in. He said, well, what makes you say it? Have you worked on cases? I said, well, one of the cases I worked on was with a man who has a three-page resume on crashes. Every line is a certification course he took. Three pages of it, more than 150. I said, yeah, I've worked with him. I know he's also my teacher in some ways. I learn from them when I work. I'm not just psychic. I'm smart, and I learn from the best. That's what makes me smart. I listened to them. I said, guys, and I just said, these guys didn't know anything. He said, oh, good to know. So I look at him, and I said, okay, your turn. What do you do? He was the attorney general for the state. Every time I think of it, I go, smiling away. I said, have fun. I wonder if what you said to him made any difference. Who knows? But I think so. I think it put a little seed in him to check out these people because there was a code in almost every, I'm pretty sure it's everywhere in our country, that you use every tool, doesn't matter what, every tool that is within the rule of law. No, I don't go to court as a witness. No, but there's nothing wrong with asking me impressions if you have no evidence or too much or you miss something. Right. That's what we're there for. We're kind of filling in with profilers of our own way. So that's everywhere. And those who ignore it when they can't close a case, they're fools Mm. because it's all ego then. And we know that factually from the serial killer case that I worked. I want to always say that story need to be filmed and called Ego Kills. And I have proof of that in the box given to me of all the papers. Right. Years later, very strange. And now I'm giving it to the brother of the murder victim many years later. So what it's happened weird. in that case? A young woman was murdered. A quick story. It's in the book, The Serial Killer, James Kodavich. So I worked... When they had a task force, I saw the first victim, knew what had happened, told it to a local that I worked with, Detective Billiers, and nothing could happen because he wasn't a party to it. He didn't know, but I shared with him what I saw. So when the second murder occurred in our state, Deirdre O'Brien, that we knew of, it was a task force because now it wasn't one county, it was two. And the minute you have the second county, you have everyone from those counties bringing, coming together to give all the information that has flowed into them. Well, I always said that there were five towns that called it in, that it was James Kadavich. One of the things I said in between everything was, five towns called it in and they were blown off, huh? Well, nobody would say a word to me about it, including the two detectives saying, the captain of homicide in a local city became the partner to Bill, and we were a trio. And so 
they wouldn't say a word because they were still working. Right. And they didn't know because the lead investigator also, I said, never saw the homicide in his life, never worked on one. I had proof it was all true. I had proof it was all five towns called in. I know who called in. One of them I told the captain of one of the places that he gave a ticket to this man. And when he gave it to him, et cetera. And later I got to talk to the cop that gave him the ticket, that kept the ticket in his straw because he knew it was him, called them in, and they blew him off 11 hours after the murder of Deirdre. But they knew who it was prior to her murder. And I have that proof in writing from Deirdre's father, who was told it by the chief prosecutor. And I don't care if anybody knows or not. Wow. Alias. Called it in, got blown off. That's terrible. Yes. And what well, was also the chief who should never have put a newbie on homicide. Right. A serial killer case. And it was a serial killer. Moment two were killed exactly the same. So many years go by. This is 1983, I think it is. And about 2008 or so, I had a bookkeeper walk in with a cardboard box. And she looked at me and she said, I didn't know you worked on the Katowicz case. I said, no, you did. She said, I just saw that. I said, uh-huh. She said, well, you know, I was Jim O'Brien's right-handed woman. I said, uh-huh. okay. Jim was her father. And I said, that's nice. I'm sorry for Jim and his family. And she said, no, no, I mean, he told, I transcribed everything that the chief prosecutor told him because they were best friends. And he felt so bad about everything. And Jim was writing the book on everything that happened, including the court cases and people who came over and every detail of everything, who ran, almost ran off his other daughters. Whoa, same person. Everything until they were caught. He was caught, I think, she died 12 days after Amy. And then he was not caught for six weeks. So it made national headlines. It was the third largest, one of three largest manhunts in our state ever, in the history of our state. Turned out he had, and I had said that, that he had killed two others in Florida. I had seen so much of who he was. And Jim Moore and Bill Hughes, who worked with me, they couldn't understand why it wasn't happening. We knew we were right. We knew too much about it. It couldn't be. Monica, bookkeeper, looks at me and she said, well, he decided instead, because he was asked to help build a center for abused children. And he did. And it's instead of a hospital for rape, et cetera, it is the most gorgeous, safe, wonderful place for them. Nurses, doctors, but the sweetest thing, they would never know it's, you know, that. Right. right. Joe O'Brien Center in Marstown, New Jersey. Beautiful. And so she, she said to him, well, what do you want me to do with the book? 328 pages. She said, whatever you want. So she gave it to me. Wow. So I was sitting there looking through it then and going, oh, my God, everything I said is more than true. And here's all the proof. And he apologized to Jim and said, I think we made a terrible mistake that cost the age of our life. I have it in writing. Wow. I looked at all that and thought, people have to know that things can't have mistakes happen, period, mm-hmm. in all ways. And so locally, a News 12 out of Connecticut, which airs in New Jersey, New York, and then someplace streamlining nationally, said, 
I want we want to do a new story on it, a plot, different kind on crime plot. They said, okay. And the interviewer, I told them I had this record of everything. He said, would you share some of it? So I did. And he said, oh. And the next place he was going to film was Digi O'Brien Center, where her brother would meet him, Jim, Jim O'Brien Jr. I said, well, tell Jim, I will send him the original everything. And I'll make a flash drive, scan it in, and then send it off. And so that's what I'm doing. By next week, hopefully, we have it all done and can send it to him. He deserves it. It's his, not mine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Oh, that's really awesome. That's really awesome that you were able to do that to give some sort of closure for the family. Well, the details, which may really put him through the roof. Yeah. I don't know. And have her remaining sisters and any other family and friends. But they deserve the truth, absolutely. And it's theirs to deal with if they want. I always felt that the whole story has to be told completely because it's a lesson. It's an absolute lesson on what egos can shut off. It was the only task force ever that we know of where the investigating prosecutor took one person out of the task force behind closed doors and took nothing from what anybody else said. I was there. Yeah. We went to the task force meeting and were thrown out. But we saw what happened and the captain that I worked with knew exactly what happened. And we talked since then. He tells it and shows Bill. And they knew. They knew that something was very off with it. And that can happen anywhere. Yes. Everyone needs to err on the side of victim rights. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. And you can ask any question. What they failed to ask, what nobody knew because they were so devastated, is to say to the lead investigator anything. But nobody reported that the task force was a fake task force. No one told the family. So when the documentaries came out, we showed it as best as possible. There was a regular task force and we were booted out when the lead investigator knew I was there and I had already told a lot of people about him. So sometimes they don't like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, are there times when you've been doing these, when you've been helping the police where it's emotionally overwhelmed you because of what you've seen or felt? Not then. Right. One I learned how to do early on, I think in nursing again, when we had crazy shifts when we're new and they right. flew us everywhere. And I'd be totally exhausted when I was young, so I'd go out on dates in between and burn the candle at three ends. <laughs> I'd be beside myself, as you say, out of my mind, just right. exhausted, crazy. So I learned that you had to build the bridge. Right. And I learned that for everything. And so when I would finish that day, if I was working with them, anybody on a case, or if I'm in my office working with a detective, I've done nothing there. And they leave. Everything I do after that is to build the bridge between that telling me the world view of horror and how humans are god awful at times, or a few of them are, and my world view of what I'm meant to be if I'm a soul. So back then, I would go home, shower, come out, now I'm going to feed my kids, and then I would generally go out dancing. Right, so you'd ground yourself. Put on music and dance at home, anything to become my whole Nancy. 
Now I'm this. Gotcha. I am not a part of a member of a team of law enforcement working, whether it's federally I've worked or anything. I do the same thing everywhere. Build the bridge. So I do that, you know, my bulk of my work has always been mentoring sessions for people and private sessions. That's the bulk of my work and animals and all the rest thrown in and past lives and what stuff. So in class, the crime work is not the bulk of my work. Right. That was just one aspect so, of it. But I've always been able to take that immediately if it's urgent. Right. And drop it. And I expect everybody to understand, you know, when there were missing children. No. Who was it? Well, you know, must have been missing something. And my kids said, I, they said goodbye. And as I turned, they said they were younger. I said, you know, I promised that we would go such and such. But if anything ever happened to any of you, I would want the world to stop and help. And so I'm just part of that. Do you get it? They said, absolutely. And you have my kids. Awesome kids. Anymore, but they are phenomenal. That's really lovely. What I really liked in your book, oh, and actually before I go on to that, do you still work with the police now or have you sort of retired from that? No. Well, a lot of people who see it want me to work privately with them and I have a little write-up on my website. Just my name is my website. And in it, I have on crime cases what I do, what I don't do. I take an oath of confidentiality many years ago. I have two different, I had two badges, the sheriff's commendation. That kind of, I don't mess around. So they can't tell me who they are in relationship. I would never talk to them. Like safety first for everybody concerned. Right. And if they're detectives or they're private investigators or they work cold cases retired, I absolutely will honor that. I have one of them who's a retired detective who loves psychic abilities and is working on his, who comes to a class via a friend who comes to a class for years and said, can he join too? And I said, sure. And he said, okay, where do I send money? I said, I would never take it from a retired detective. Are you crazy? That would be assured. That would be bad karma. He already served enough. So I think of that, you know, that I'm part of that. I'm not different from them. Yeah. I mean, as one of the guys. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand that. So, yeah, what I was going to say before I sidetracked was I really love in your, my life as the, the psychic detective book, it's not just about your cases, you teach people how to access their own inner knowing and their own abilities, which I think is really cool. Thank you. The purpose I even wrote the book was to do that, mm-hmm. but the cases can share with you a process by osmosis you can get. Then I want to extract and tell you, here are some ideas. Go use them. See what happens. And I've gotten some wonderful emails back about it. It's so sweet. Yeah. When I started as a kid, where's my whatever? Right. That to me was a game. Right. So I thought it was so much fun to find things. I don't know why. Like treasure hunting. Right. You find a penny in the sand? Woo! I bet there's more. I mean, that's what it was always. And I think that's the seed of, aren't we curious to find out what we're capable of that we didn't know we're capable of? 
self-discovery. So the first one was absolutely about missing anything, people. And that's how it grows, because from the sea, you're able then, as you said, you can connect to the other side. There had to be things that you did before, focused intention on where something is. And I know nursing teaches us that a it, lot. It does. Yeah, for right? Sure. It, how to focus with intention. Don't ever have a crash card that's perfect. Don't ever have a, a show equipment that's not sterile. Don't ever touch it that way. Don't ever turn the person wrong. Don't ever, <laughs> what? Added up to focused intention, right? Double check everything. Read the yeah. chart carefully. And I think that that's the wonder of it is... All those pieces, and I was raised on puzzles and card. I think they were the seed that grew the ability so that when I was missing something, the other part is photographic memories. We all have some degree, mm-hmm. and if we don't, it's because somehow the light that's penetrating the brain is not making the signals for the production of daydreams, night dreams. Memories, visual memories. That's not just clairvoyance. Clairvoyance is an inner mechanism, right? And that means that you need a little inhalation of not phony, fragrance-scented things going to your brain, not petrochemicals going to your brain, that kind of thing. Cleaning it up. So I've been blessed with an almost perfect photographic memory as a child. And I use that to find things and to go back in my mind step by step like a movie and go, let's see, I did this three days ago and then I did that and then I did. Well, that's where it is. Right. And so when people saw that I can do it, they'd say, where I put my, and I tell them quiet down, even as a kid, just quiet down. So where were you the last time you held it in your hand? Well, when you're not body conscious, you have no clue. It's not recorded. Right. So I have to record it. Right. Right, because you you get yeah. so caught up in things, right? Day to day, yeah, fine. yeah. That's yeah. the whole point. I was my mind was elsewhere, but my body was right there, and it did this while my mind was some. My mind is part of the nervous system in the brain, so it didn't record what the body was doing because it was so focused on something else, like right. worry. Right, and that's why we try not to worry when we're holding anything. Keys. Yeah. Do not home. I was in Disney World in Orlando and I don't know how or what, must have been exhausted, but I had opened my bag and my wallet had fallen out. My wallet is a police wallet gifted to me by the commissioner who made my honorary badges on the cover of my book. So it's I always have it on me. It's my very special. And all of a sudden it was gone. So we went to the nearest store, the first store there in the place. And a woman was there, and I go to the counter, and I said, I lost my wallet. And she brings it out. Apparently, the woman's husband also lost the wallet, and uh, who's a cop. And so she's opened my wallet, and they see the badge, and the woman goes, oh, he's not a detective. That's a gorgeous badge. I go, that's my badge. Look at the picture of me and the driver's license. And I'm like, thank you so much. She said, Nobody wanted to touch it, actually. Uh, oh, that's right. He's on the other side, but he did go to me a lot. Oh, oh, that's really lovely. Let me see. Are there any misconceptions about 
mediums and psychic ability that perhaps you might like oh. to correct? Oh, I thank you. Oh, you're so lucky. Ethics, caution before you even start anything. So do I stay safe? Do not mention names on social media. If you want to find missing people or animals or whatever, sure, form a group offline and know who you're talking with. Don't tell names to anybody you don't know. What if you're right? And what if that person also has rage? You stay safe. So ethics, caution. I have an oath of confidentiality I created actually with my wonderful third husband. He's my real husband, many years. And I'm a minister, and I took an oath at the police academy. I took an oath as a minister, and I took an oath as a nurse. So me, it's everything's confidential except what I'm permitted to say. Compliant. And you want to stay safe, and you want families and anybody else to stay safe. Being psychic does not mean you're always on or you can always do it. Just because I found, and I'll give you an instance, because I find that everything can be a lesson if you want it to. So a woman emails me saying about a missing child in the country that's made headlines. And the family and thousands of people have searched. And obviously, you have the gift, so you should find them for her. And so I wrote back, first trying to explain, and said, there's something like, I think, 25,000 at any given point missing in our country. I'm a little crazy country. Wow. You know that? And, uh, you know, I quoted that and I said, and I have already had plenty to do unless I get called. I do not work on things I am not called to work on. Thinking that would quite, she sent back, but if I had your gift, I would have done it. Just in that kind of tone in the writing. And I thought, wait a minute, how come I didn't get to move to help you? What was I missing? Instead of, at first, the very first moment was, oh, you arrogant son of a gun. Or worse, wait a minute, I need to educate, and I'm not educating her because she's not really getting it. She's probably done. I don't want to deal with it, but I just told her, oh, wait a minute. She said, can I hear? I said, you take an oath never to mention it anywhere right now, and then you can listen. So she did because she had a new baby. And I said to her, you have a child. And she got it immediately. She was wonderful. And so she and the guy and I were alone in a corner later, nobody around. And I said, this was February, I think. I said, in the month of May, on Sunday, I told them the date. I said, a customs officer from northern Michigan to Canada is going to catch her and bring you back the baby, the two-year-old son. And so that was it. And I got a call that Sunday in May. He had him in his arms. Customs officer didn't like her look. No way. Wow. That's, that's my explanation. So I wrote it up, put it on my website under crimes and said, there's an oath of confidentiality. You won't know what I'm working on and you're not telling me what to work on. I only work when law enforcement agrees to work with me. That's it. I'm done. And now I'm almost 80. So I may be done with that because I love what I do now. Yeah. I'm developing an online course so that some people, when they don't have time, they can just review all the modules by themselves whenever they want. I love all of that. Yeah. I love teaching. Always have. Actually, was my next question what oh. projects do you have in, in mind? So that's oh, awesome. Well, wait. Okay. So I have a friend, client, many, and 
take many classes with me. She wants to do a book with me for intuitives. So we're doing one on short stories and quotations about intuition and intuitives. And then another one is a very successful children's book artist. I'm laughing. I should have as many books sold as he has. His, his books for art, his uh, children's art work on books sold. 200,000. Wow. Yeah, he's good. So he wants to do something with me. And then, because I, I love children's stories. Right. What I've taught some years ago in Montessori school, I was, I would come in and help in Montessori, et cetera. And I love doing that. And what you see in children about this, some of them are skeptics early on because yeah. of where they get from home and others are not. So yeah, there are a lot of projects. I love projects. Absolutely love projects. I actually personally can't even see you slowing down. No, no, I have a whole list and I have thousands of pages I haven't really dealt with yet that my daughter said, Mom, why don't you ever just write the whole thing out? I go, I did, but I don't know if I'll ever get into it or not. I'm not quite sure I want to. It all depends on there are things you will never know, children. I don't care how old you are. It's not yours to know about those parts. And that's that's fair cool too. Then I totally I, 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 she's very psychic, so maybe nothing's hidden for her. I was going to say, have you achieved yeah. and inherited your abilities? Well, my son was so telepathic and psychic when he was little. And then he decided to go through a cynical part. And then he sat down with me. He must have been 12, I guess, finally, 13. It's about now. We're out in a Chinese restaurant, he and I. Once a week, I would take him somewhere. And he'd say, you know, Mom, being a witch, you really need a wizard. And I'm thinking, a witch, he didn't, it meant healing. And not yeah. a witch. I don't practice it, but I know it well. And I think I honor them. First people who care about Mother Earth. So, you yeah. know, so I have nothing but good things about them. And I'm an environmentalist. So, yay, yay, yay. So he looks and I'm looking at him. Where did you get all that from? And then I realized one of the guys who wrote Dungeons and Dragons was 20 minutes from us. And I hooked them up with my son, who is a little mad genius. And he would play with the original Dungeon and Dragon guys. Oh, and wow. He said wizard. So I marry a guy whose email is Oz Wizard. And he's psychic as all hell. Very psychic. But he uses it very differently. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of pattern that he dreamt. How to. They are, they are uh, specialized semiconductors and other things he comes up with. Creative, artist, anything. Music, but all of it, he can walk into the bank teller and go, Oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm thinking, Why? And he's saying, Are you okay? She goes, Thank you. Yes. Walking out. And he said, Well, she had a miscarriage. I said, Oh, I didn't know. He said, Well, I just picked it up when I was there. I said, Hmm. Mm. Oh, mm. good. Oh, uh, really that's really lovely. Yeah. yeah, that's really lovely. To close off our wonderful conversation, I've really enjoyed it. Would you like to share with my listeners where they can buy your book? You have your book, The Life of a Psychic Detective. You have your book, All Nature Speaks. 
which I actually only just started reading, but the, the Life of Psychic Detective is a really awesome book. Where can people get your book from and where can they reach you? Are you on social media? Well, outside of some countries, Amazon, it's online. And Kindle, obviously, and EPUB, which is good for any kind of online reading now. Right. EPUB is now the way. No Mobis any longer. So there's EPUB and there are paperbacks available. And I don't know what countries they sell them to, other than I've seen UK, Australia, few of them. Right. I should imagine you, you'd be able to get it from most countries. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure there are. I think the Kindle for pretty much any country, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And on my website, I have it on Kindle too. So if there's any problem, we send it directly. Right. So what's your website? My name. So it's just nancyorland.com. N-A-N-C-Y-O-R-L-E-N, like in night, Weber, W-E-B-E-R.com. Awesome. And there'll also be links to Nancy's website from this episode's page on the podcast website at www.walkingthelands.com. In case you were unable to grab it then, you can uh, link to her website from there. Are you on any other social media, Nancy? I'm on YouTube channel I have, Facebook group. I am on my personal page for years simply because I like meeting people that say right. hello. And I have a uh, psychic detective page in which I post all the podcasts and on my website. And I post the podcasts everywhere. So I have a few groups that I'm part of, but that one is the psychic detective Nancy Ellen Weber fan side, I think. It was made by somebody from Denmark. Oh, uh, nice. Somebody who took mentoring with me. Nice, wonderful. Suzanne Yerkinson, who runs a healing group. Nice. And so, yeah, it's so much fun to know people from all over who are doing their work too. We're all light keepers in this world. Absolutely. So I will actually get the links to all of those and put links on your page on our website as well. Thank you so much for your time today, Nancy. It's been really an interesting conversation and I'm so impressed with how you work. I think that's amazing and and I really feel like, you know, it's an area that even though it's not commonly used, I think it should be used more, to be honest. I always feel in talking with you like I'm talking to a soul sister who has so much in common and I thank you so much because you are so available in all ways. It's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Nancy. As we draw the curtains on this insightful episode, we extend our sincere appreciation to Nancy for sharing her remarkable journey and valuable insights. With each case she encountered, it was obvious that she brings not only her psychic gifts, but also a deep sense of compassion and friendship. Nancy's unwavering commitment to seeking truth and justice 
has forged lasting bonds with those she has worked alongside, transcending the boundaries of profession and circumstance. Throughout her career, Nancy has navigated challenges and complexities, facing scepticism and adversity with resilience and grace. From deciphering fingerprints to unravelling the mysteries of DNA, she approaches each task with a blend of curiosity and determination, knowing that the pursuit of truth requires courage and clarity of vision. To my awesome listeners, thank you for tuning in and exploring the fascinating world of psychic investigation with us. Stay connected for more thought-provoking discussions. And just before I finish for this episode, just a reminder that this is the last episode for the season 12. I'll be off here for three to four weeks prepping for season 13, finding and interviewing interesting guests for you all to listen to from my new home here in Palm Beach on the Gold Coast of Australia. Such a beautiful area. Until next season, this is Marianne bidding you farewell from the Shadowlands. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and share it with friends so you don't miss out on any episode. Like and follow for teasers of our upcoming shows. Also follow us on all the social media platforms. Check out our Facebook page, WT Shadowlands. Our Instagram feed, Walking the Shadowlands. TikTok under walking underscored the underscored shadowlands. Also, we have a YouTube channel under Walking the Shadowlands as well. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words. Open Walking the Shadowlands and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. If you don't have a smartphone, don't worry. You can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website so you don't miss out at all. Thanks for listening to this episode. Ka kite.